0: So, if you're ready for a really detailed analysis of the New Testament, you've come to the right place. Welcome. Hi there, welcome back. This will be for Hebrews chapter 9. The heading reads Mosaic Ordinances Prefigured Christ's Ministry. Christ is the Mediator of the New Covenant, verse 1. Then verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. Built on earth, there are three main divisions in the tabernacle of Moses. The temple of Herod presumably was set up the same way. The first was an outer courtyard which contained the altar of sacrifice and the large laver for washing ordinances. This is where the Levites performed most most of the animal sacrifice spoken of in the Mosaic law. This area represented the celestial kingdom. The second division was called the holy place. Both the holy place and the holy of holies were contained in an enclosure within the courtyard. The two rooms being separated by an elaborate double veil. The holy place was a room which contained the altar of incense, the table of shoebread, and the golden candlestick. Paul refers to this room as the first tabernacle. Performing ordinances in this room was com- common but still considered a privilege. This was the room Zacharias entered when his, hot- when his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. This area represented the terrestrial kingdom. The third division was the holy of holies, the most holy place, or the holiest of all. Paul refers to this place as the second tabernacle. It contained the Ark of the Covenant and the holiest relics of the Mosaic tradition. Representing the celestial kingdom, only the high priest was allowed to enter this room, and this was only once a year. None of the other Levites were allowed to enter, hence the symbolism of the ancient tabernacle was that neither the, neither the people nor the priests could be brought into the presence of God by the law of Moses. Paul doesn't miss the symbolism declaring that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, which was a figure for the time then present. Verse two: For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the ta- and the table and the shewbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, or the holy of holies, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the gold golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the of the of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. In other words, it's too sacred to talk about. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accompanying the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone every once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. The Holy Ghost signifying this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as yet the first tabernacle was standing." Christ brings us into the presence of the Father, which was a figure, verse 9, which was a figure or similitude for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. Though Paul did not detail the meaning of each of these items associated with the temple, his purpose was to emphasize that each was intended as a witness of Jesus as the Christ. That was by Joseph Fielding McConkie. Verse 10, which consisted only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. Paul named various of the Mosaic ordinances and performances and said they were a shadow of heavenly things. The meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation, he said, were were designed as a figure for the time then present. He spoke of the various formalities involved in sprinkling blood as patterns of things of a much higher nature. The law, he said, was a shadow of good things to come. But perhaps Amulek's statement is the clearest and best of all. He said, This is the whole meaning of the law, every whit pointing to that great and last sacrifice, and that great and last sacrifice will be the Son of God, yea, infinite and eternal. Verse 11, But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Once a year, a high priest entered the holiest place. Symbolically, he was only allowed in once a year because it would only take one sacrifice of the great high priest to pass the impassable barrier, the veil of the temple. The Aaronic priesthood had not the power to bring the children of Israel into the the presence of God. Accordingly, none of the children of Israel or the priests were allowed past the veil. What would it take to break the barrier? How could the chosen people ever break through the veil? It would take the infinite and eternal sacrifice of the Son of God. His entering into the holy place and sitting at the right hand of the Father opened the Holy of Holies to all who would be his disciples. Hence, when the great sacrifice was complete, the veil of the temple was rent in two pieces. Was it the earthquake that tore the veil? The veil was suspended on two rods. An earthquake might have knocked it to the ground but it would not have torn it in two from the top to the bottom rather the temple veil was torn by the hand of god symbolizing that moment when the great high priest had broken the great barrier when he had split the blood that when he had spilt the blood that could actually atone for sins when the law of moses and its temple ordinances had finally been fulfilled Bruce R. McConkie said, Deity rent the veil of the temple from the top to the bottom. The Holy of Holies is now open to all, and all through the atoning blood of the Lamb can now enter into the highest and holiest of all places, that kingdom where eternal life is found. Paul, in expressive language, Shows how the ordinances performed through the veil of the ancient temple were in similitude of what Christ was to do, which he now, having done, all men become eligible to pass through the veil into the presence of the Lord to fulfil or to inherit full exaltation. We know that uh, this the similarities here between the holy of holies and the celestial room is that uh, the holy of holies uh, um, or the celestial room is the holiest place uh, that we go into uh, however each temple does have a room that's the holy of holies we know that in the salt lake temple there's a holy of holies which is just off of the celestial room uh, and that every other temple uh, that's been built has also a holy of holies verse 13 for if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify Sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause he is the mediator of the new covenant, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where covenant is, where a covenant is, there must also of necessity be the death of the te- of the victim or the testator. For a covenant is of force after the victim is dead; otherwise or since it is of no strength at all while the victim lives or liveth. In other words, Christ had to die to bring salvation. The testament or covenant of salvation came in force because of the atonement worked out in connection with that death. Christ is the testator. His gift, as would be true of any testator, cannot be inherited until his death. Christ died that salvation might come. Without his death, he could not have willed either immortality or eternal life to men. That was by Bruce R. McConkie. Verse 18 Whereupon neither the first covenant was declared was was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled likewise with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Joseph Ealing Smith said, Here is a clear statement that the remission of sins cannot come except by the shedding of blood. In ancient times, sacrifices were made by the shedding of the blood of clean animals. This shedding of blood was twofold in its application. It pointed forward to the great sacrifice that was to be made by our Redeemer, and it also became a purifying agent which helped to remind Israel of sins and how to overcome them. Since it was by the creation of blood that mortality came, it is by the sacrifice of blood that the redemption from death was completed, or was accomplished, in all creatures freed from Satan's grasp. In no other way could the sacrifice for redemption of the world come or from death be accomplished, blood being the agent of mortality. It had to be returned to Satan and to death whence it came. Have we ever stopped to think of the deplorable condition this world would what world was in due to the partaking of the fruit by adam no doubt satan felt that he had accomplished his purpose in bringing death and therefore the entire posterity of adam would become subject unto him the blessed son of god was chosen before the foundation of the world to redeem mankind it had to be a redemption by the shedding of blood also it had to be by a god who had power over death One who could lay down his body by the shedding of his blood and then take his body up again by the inherent power which was in him. Jesus obtained his blood from his mother Mary. He obtained his power over death from his father. Therefore he could and did voluntarily surrender himself to his enemies who crucified him by the shedding of his blood. When he arose from the tomb he was free from blood and his body had become subject to eternal law henceforth and forever. Verse 23, "'It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into, he- but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of, of others.' Once a year on Yom Kippur the Day of Atonement, the high priest would make sacrifices for himself and his brother priests so as to make them symbolically worthy to perform their sacred functions. Then he would lay aside his priestly robes, don a simple white tunic in preparation for the sacrifice itself, and return to the other, to the outer court. Taking two pure unblemished male goats, he would dedicate one to Jehovah and one to the evil one, Azazel, or the devil. The goat dedicated to Jehovah was then sacrificed in the outer court. Its blood was taken into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the mercy seat and before the Ark of the Covenant. This symbolized that Israel's sins were atoned for by sacrifice. That was out of the Institute Manual. Verse 26, For then must must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the meridian of time hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and he shall appear the second time without sin unto salvation unto them that look for him. As the pure sacrificial offering, Christ was beyond sin. Thus, he gave for sin what sin could not rightfully claim. As the perfect high priest, he gave himself as the perfect offering. He was holy, innocent, spotless, set apart from sinners. He took on himself our blame through though without spot, or literally blameless. Thus, his culminating sacrifice superseded the daily sacrifices. That is, the point of Paul's long arguments. Repeated altar slayings were no longer necessary, for Christ died once for sins to bring forgiveness to all. That thought in number is restated over a half a dozen times in about three chapters, revealing Paul's core message. Christ offered one sacrifice for sins forever. And that was by uh, Richard Lloyd Anderson. The incompleteness of the priestly sacrifices being offered annually stands in contrast to the infinite and eternal sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the great high priest, and is further illustrated by the fact that Israel's priests stood while offering sacrifices Whereas Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins forever and thereafter sat down on the right hand of God. I bear testimony that these things are true, that uh, Jesus has sacrificed for us and that he completed the infinite and eternal atonement for our benefit so that we can receive a remission of our sins and enter back into God's presence. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. See you next time. Bye.